Hey guys, it's Pastor DeAndre here. I have a question for you. Where are you tuning in from? We want to know. No matter if FAC is your church home or you stumbled across this video on YouTube or you're watching our Facebook premiere video, either way, we are really excited that you're watching with us and we want to know where you are watching from. So if you're up for it, let us know that you're watching and where you're watching from by posting in the comment section of the video that you are currently watching. Now, if you are watching on Facebook, we know that sometimes the comments can be a little distracting. If you agree, we want to encourage you to turn those comments off and enjoy our premiere video. Now, our time together next week will be another special time because once again, we will have the opportunity to take communion together while still being apart. It'll work the same way that it did a few weeks ago. Our director of children's ministry, John Sear, will be leading us in our time of communion. So you will need to be prepared with your choice of juice and bread. Remember, it doesn't matter if it's white or wheat, just needs to be bread to eat. This current time that we are in as a church is one that at times can be very confusing. If you're like me, you might be asking, when will this all be over? Unfortunately, we do not know. But something that we do know is that Psalm 46 verse 7 tells us that the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our refuge. That is a reminder to me that no matter how long this lasts or if it will end tomorrow, God will always be with me and he is always with you no matter what. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter what, you will always be with us. Father, we know that you are in control of everything that is going on. You are in control of our lives, Lord. And we thank you so much for that, Father. We pray that in this time of worship, we are able to feel connected to each other and connected to you. We pray this in your awesome, holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. Well, hello, FAC. Uh, Pastor Mike here. Um, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to go ahead and return to our study of that first community of believers from uh, 2,000 years ago. I hope you had a wonderful Easter uh, celebration despite the circumstances. I know that my family made the most of it. Uh, given the Easter season, we purposefully took a break from our study in the book of Acts, but now it is time to pick up where we left off. It's been three weeks since we've been in Acts, and when we hit the pause button, we had just closed out a first major unit of the book. And so I want to take the first several minutes uh, of our time today to just give you a recap of where we've been. Uh, if you were to travel all the way back to Acts chapter 1, you would find that Jesus is still on earth in the flesh when he commissions his 12 disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Uh, but he does tell them to just hold off for a few days because they will still need to receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus explains that it's the Holy Spirit that will give them the power and the gifting to accomplish such a mission. Sure enough, Jesus ascends into heaven, and a few days later, as the disciples are hanging around, they receive the Holy Spirit. And this once timid group that just kind of disappeared and feared for their lives when Jesus was uh, arrested, they are now preaching boldly and publicly in the streets of Jerusalem. From that point on, we begin to see thousands of new believers come into this community and uh, thousands of people come to know and believe and trust in uh, Jesus uh, within the Jerusalem uh, city limits. And they form this really close-knit community. 
Those first set of believers in Acts chapter 2, we kind of see the ideal Christian community, if you will. They're devoted to the same mission. They are unified in their purpose, and they are caring for one another's needs. Now, of course, from there on, this new movement garners quite the attention among the people, but also attracts some unwelcome attention from the Jewish religious leaders. This wasn't good attention. They wanted the disciples to cease from preaching and to cease from doing ministry to the point where they they inflicted a severe amount of punishment on them. They would throw them in jail. They would beat them. And that's actually where we left off three weeks ago with the martyrdom of Stephen. They killed Stephen for what he had to say about Jesus. And one outcome of Stephen's death was the scattering of believers outside of Jerusalem. Uh, However, last time we did leave off uh, with the silver lining that the scattering of such believers meant that the good news of Jesus would also be scattered. And as we closed the book on that first section of Acts, we held on to that glimmer of hope that in such a dire situation of uh, persecution, in such a dire circumstance, God was still at work and still active in the proclamation of his word. Today, we get to pick up and see specifically the first fruit of Stephen's death. As the believers are purged from Jerusalem, we will now follow them in our study. And today, as we travel out from Jerusalem, we'll make our first stop in the region of Samaria. And so let's take a look at it. I'm going to read from uh, verses 4 to 8 in Acts chapter 8. Follow along as I read. It says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Would you pray with me as we begin our time looking at this passage? Heavenly Father, we would ask now that as we come to your word, you would give us understanding. And from understanding, from our head knowledge, there would be heart transformation. Lord, I pray that we can see this as a crucial step in your mission, Father, and and see how important this was, that this occurred, and how important this is for us today. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? This is what the apostles James and John casually suggested to Jesus one day when a Samaritan village had rejected them. Jesus and his crew were heading down to Jerusalem from Galilee, and when they made this trek, Jesus would often take his disciples and travel through Samaria. On this particular occasion, Jesus sent messengers ahead of them to prepare a place in a Samaritan village, and we read that the people actually did not receive Jesus. They rejected him. They said, no thanks, we just don't want you passing through. We don't want your business here. 
You can read the story for yourself in Luke chapter 9, and what you'll come to find is that this story is a clear demonstration of prejudice on the part of the Samaritans against Jesus and his followers. We know that this is true because in the text, Luke writes that they did not receive Jesus because they knew he was going to Jerusalem. Basically, they didn't allow him to stay in their village or stop in their village because they were Jewish and they had a Jewish business to attend to in Jerusalem. And then the believers don't do much better in return, right? When they uh, want to strike the Samaritans down with fire from heaven. It, it reads somewhat comically today because you don't typically have people walking around who threaten to call down fire from heaven against their enemies. Uh, maybe some people do that, but it's not normal. Um, but in this, you can imagine the ill intent that these disciples had against the Samaritans. They were really angry and upset and they wanted to cause true harm to these people for rejecting them. This story is just a small taste of what relations were like between the Jews and their neighbors, the Samaritans in that time period. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. Uh, in their, in the first century, their relationship is estranged. So much so that the Jews would actually inconvenience themselves to avoid contact with the Samaritans if they could. I want to show you a map that illustrates this. Now Jesus is uh, from Galilee, which is in the northern part of that map that you're seeing right now. And all the Jews, according to their law, needed to travel to Jerusalem at least three times a year. As you can see from this map, the quickest route from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south would be to travel straight through Samaria. However, because of such hatred, oftentimes the Jewish people would travel around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. The Jews would go out of their way to inconvenience themselves. Uh, they'd go out of the way and inconvenience themselves so that they didn't have to interact with the Samaritans. This would be like if I was traveling to West Virginia on I-79 South from Erie. And as a Cleveland Browns fan, I decided that I was going to avoid Pittsburgh at all costs. Because who wants to make a stop in Steeler Nation? No, I want to avoid the Yinzers as much as I can. And so uh, to to avoid having to interact with Steelers fans, I travel around Pittsburgh. And sure, it'll cost me an hour or two, but it's worth it if I don't have to see a single terrible towel. This is what it's like for the Jews and the Samaritans, but even more so because there is deep-seated hatred for each other. And this hatred actually traces all the way back to the 8th century BC 
when a foreign nation, the Assyrians, came in and conquered this Samaritan region, the Samaria, the region of Samaria of Israel. And the Jewish people of that day in that region began to worship the foreign idols that the Assyrians brought in. And they began marrying non-Jewish people. It's what they would call Gentiles. With this, the Jewish people, as one commentator describes it, looked at the Samaritans as defecting half-breeds. Essentially, the Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jewish people, were ethnic traitors who turned their backs on true Judaism. So when we come to the book of Acts as a whole, we must understand that to this point, There have been eight centuries worth of racial prejudice between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. There are 800 years worth of uh, racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. There are eight centuries of hostility and division between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so it might be a little shocking to the Jewish people In Acts chapter 1, his disciples, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In Jesus' commissioning of the disciples, despite the poor relations between the Samaritans and the Jews, Jesus is drawing attention to the essential step of Samaria, in gospel movement, in God's plan of salvation proclaimed to the world. In a sense, it's almost as if Jesus is saying that in order to reach the rest of the world, you have to go through Samaria first to do it. You can no longer dance around Samaria and avoid them. You have to go through them. In a modern-day context, we would call this cross-cultural evangelism. We as believers must be ready and willing to share the good news of Jesus with people that aren't like us, that people, with people that don't look like us, with people that don't act like us, with people that don't sound like us, and perhaps people that hate us. And in order for this to happen, we have to do a little bit of a hard examination on ourselves, don't we? We need to turn to to God and say, Lord, would, would you help me with my own prejudices that I have for people that are different than me? Would you help me not discriminate against someone who has a different background than me? And would you, Lord, forgive me for the times that I've desired to call down fire from heaven for those who have prejudiced against me? I assure you in Acts chapter 1, this may have been an uncomfortable prospect for those first disciples. We know this because in that passage, they're still concerned with national identity. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they ask the resurrected Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They want to showcase their Jewish culture to the world, but Jesus actually doesn't answer the question. 
No, instead he gives them the commission. He, he says that in a few days you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Perhaps the disciples sat there and said, well, certainly not Samaria. You must be mistaken, Jesus, because the Samaritans are worlds apart from us. Even if we're willing to go, they hate us. They're not going to receive us. We've already experienced that. This can't be. No, Jesus, it's going to take an act of God for them to receive us. I would imagine that there may have been some initial doubting among Jesus' first followers because there is a significant cultural barrier, as we've seen, between them and the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews are worlds apart, and there is no bridge between these two worlds. There's actually a wall. But Jesus, in his commissioning, says that the power of the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the Holy Spirit will remove those barriers. And you can certainly read Jesus' words in Acts 1, not just as, this is what I'm commanding you to do, but rather, this is just what's going to happen, whether you believe it's so or not. No matter what barriers lies ahead, you can be rest assured that I'm going to remove it. Jesus says, guys, I'm going to give you the play-by-play ahead of time. This is what is going to happen. This is what you are going to experience in the coming months. First, you'll receive the Spirit, and then you'll preach to Jerusalem and surrounding regions in Judea, and then you will go to Samaria. This is how the expansion of the gospel is just going to happen, whether you believe it is possible or not. This is Jesus' vision for what's to come. As I speak with ministry leaders on a constant basis, it doesn't take long to realize that we in the American church, in a Western culture, are obsessed with methods and goal setting and vision casting. We have seemed almost to a fault to take practices that have proved successful in the secular business world and tried to apply them to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in the church. But let me assure you that the Holy Spirit is not restricted to man-made methods. If you were to sit in on these ministry leadership planning sessions, I'll tell you what you would find. You would find several huge whiteboards with scribbles sprawled all across it. Uh, You would see a SWOT analysis, and you would see one and three and five-year goals, and you would see 50-year goals, and you would see 100-year goals, and you would probably see a vision statement in there uh, somewhere. But what is painfully absent in some of these sessions that I have sat in on is adequate time devoted to prayer. Intentional time uh, going to God and saying, would your spirit empower us to do ministry like he did for those first apostles? No, there is no reason for us to get clever in our ministry pursuits because Jesus has given us the vision. He gave the disciples the plan. The vision. He gives them the Holy Spirit so that they may be empowered to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In these first seven chapters of Acts, we don't get a picture of the apostles' vision casting on a whiteboard because Jesus did that for them. No, the picture we see instead is that of obedience to God's sovereign plan. 
obedience to his vision. Where the Spirit would sovereignly guide and lead them, they would simply be obedient. And this is what we see as we return to Acts chapter 8. After Stephen dies for his faith, because he was obedient, all believers uh, scatter. And in God's providential sovereignty, where does Philip land? In Samaria. Just as Jesus had said it would be. Just as Jesus said was the next step. I share all of this with you to show you how significant of a step Acts 7 and 8 are. These chapters are a pivot point in the expansion of the gospel. We see two major transitions here in Acts chapter 7 and 8. We, we see a transition in who is proclaiming the gospel, and we see a transition in who is receiving the gospel. And so in light of that, I, I want us to consider two people or two parties from this passage that represent that transition. First, I want us to consider uh, the, the character of Philip and the role that Philip plays in this narrative. And then I want you to consider the role that the Samaritans play in this narrative. First, who is this Philip guy? At first glance in our passage that I read moments ago, it seems as though Philip is this extraordinary preacher who is talented in communication. It seems that he has years of experience in ministry. But then when you think about the story of Acts, you recall back to chapter 6, and you remember, wait a minute, Philip isn't one of the apostles. Isn't Philip one of those Ordinary seven men that were chosen by the, by the, the, the leaders to serve the widows. You see, there's been a transition here. Between Stephen, who we learned about several weeks ago, and Philip, we, we see that God is no longer using the apostles exclusively. Up through chapter 6, the original apostles, the, the 12 disciples, played the prominent role in communicating and proclaiming the gospel. But now the emphasis in the narrative has shifted to second generation leaders. And when you consider the resumes of Stephen and Philip, there's really not much, is there? Right? We know that they were chosen in chapter 6 to serve the widows. Both of them were. And from that, we can learn a little bit about who Philip is. Not much, but enough to uh, understand who he is. Um, he, he was chosen for a reason. We know that he had a good reputation. That means that the rest of the community at large respected him. And he didn't do anything that would make Jesus' name look bad. We know that he was full of the Holy Spirit which means that there was evidence in his life that he had given the control of his life to the Spirit, that, that there was submission to the Spirit's leading. He was, if you will, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Philip had wisdom. And not only that, we know that he willingly served and learned under the authority of the apostles. Now think about all of those uh, things on Philip's resume, if you will. You'll notice that none of those are necessarily skills to acquire. No, this isn't a special skill set that Philip has obtained that qualifies him to serve the widows and later share the message of the gospel with the Samaritans. No, these are actually just character qualities. 
This is just who Philip is. And when you couple such character qualities with Philip's obedience, you see amazing ministry effectiveness in Samaria. You may discourage yourself personally from sharing the good news of Jesus because you've set up higher standards for yourself than God has. You say, well, I need to be more eloquent to share the good news of Jesus. I need to be smarter to share the good news of Jesus. I need to be a seasoned communicator to share the good news of Jesus. I need to know all the answers to share the good news of Jesus. When in all reality, God is merely asking for your faithfulness to his character and your obedience to his will. That's all God wants for you to be faithful and to be obedient. And God will use you more than you even realize. And not only do we seem to place higher standards on ourselves to conduct effective ministry, but we also place tighter parameters. This is what I mean by that. We, we think, well, I can't possibly evangelize or be missional unless I'm overseas or if I'm in a different setting or context. I have to go on a missions trip in order to fulfill God's plan, in order to carry out his will. But once again, you'll notice in our passage that Philip never strategically planned to go on a missions trip to Samaria. He's only in Samaria because he fled for the hills when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, when the believers were scattered. Uh, He's only in Samaria. He just happens to be in Samaria because it's where he lands after Stephen's death. In God's providence, though, he ends up right where God would have him. And in obedience, he proclaims the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. I hope you see my point here. Right now, for whatever reason, maybe not even known to you, God has placed you somewhere. And the best place for you to do ministry right now is to do ministry where God has providentially set you down. God is saying in this moment, I have equipped you with all that you need in my word and in my spirit. I have placed you right where I want you in this moment. And now all you need to do is to be faithful and to be obedient. If God has placed you in Erie, Pennsylvania, You better believe that the place he's calling you to do ministry right now is in Erie, Pennsylvania. God places Philip in Samaria. And so Philip preaches to the Samaritans. And that's the second group that I want to look at in our passage because this is another major transition that we see in Acts. And not only has the deliverer of the gospel uh, transitioned from the apostles to second-generation leaders, but now the receivers of the gospel have changed. 
We'll come to find in Acts chapter 8 that the Samaritans are the first non-Jewish people to hear and receive the gospel. This may not sound important right now, but in that day, this was extremely significant. Because the Jewish people always knew that this Savior, that this Messiah was going to come from the Jewish people. And so the Jews always assumed that he was going to come not just from the Jewish people, but exclusively for the Jewish people. This will actually come into play later on in Acts that we'll see. Acts chapter 15, when there were some believers that were claiming that in order to take full advantage of Jesus' sacrifice, in order to enjoy God's blessings to the full extent, you must first become Jewish. That was the question at hand. The question at hand asked, is Christianity merely a religious faction of Judaism, or is it a completely new way to experience and understand a, a relationship with God. And you'll find the answer to this question when you revisit the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Pastor Scott referenced this last week, but I want to give you a refresher. On his way back home from Jerusalem, once again, uh, Jesus makes a pit stop in a Samaritan village, specifically at a well. And there is a woman there. And Jesus asks her if she would draw him some water. And the woman is surprised. She's kind of thrown off. She's taken aback. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then John reminds us in the text that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Now, through their conversation, as it continues, the, the woman comes to realize that Jesus is a prophet, and they get into this theological conversation about God. It's a discussion about the proper way to worship God, and who can worship God, and where they should worship God. And I want you to listen to this conversation between the woman and Jesus in, in John chapter 4, 19 through 23. Take a look at the verses. Well, once again, Pastor Scott read this last week, but I want to read it to you again because there is an extremely important theological point here. This is what it says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is saying, God the Father desires the worship from his creation. He desires people to worship him. He's looking for people to worship them and they don't need to be Jewish. They don't need to worship in Jerusalem. They don't need to worship in the temple. And we come to find that 
they don't need to worship in this way because Jesus' death and resurrection broke all of those barriers. Think back to when we studied Acts chapter 7, when we looked at Stephen's speech. This was one of the main ideas of Stephen's speech, right? That the worship of God is not limited to Jerusalem, and it's not limited to the Jewish nation, and it's not limited to the temple. But to this point in Acts, this idea that the worship of God is not limited to Jerusalem is merely theoretical because the gospel had only been proclaimed to Jewish people in Jerusalem. Only Jewish people have trusted Jesus. But now, in Acts chapter 8, we read that the Samaritan crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said and preached and proclaimed by Philip. Philip has their attentions, their, their ears are, are peaked, they're listening in closely and they're paying attention to his teaching. And we come to find that the city is filled with great joy. That's what it says in verse 8, that there was such great joy because the, the power of the Holy Spirit is moving in their midst. They are now receiving Jesus, non-Jewish people, in a way that they never have before. And we don't see it in these verses, but next week we'll see that they do believe in Jesus and they follow through to, to, to be baptized. And so here's the point. What Stephen preached uh, about this theoretically in Acts chapter 7 we now see plays out practically in Acts chapter 8. This is the difference between teaching subject matter in a classroom setting from a book and teaching subject matter in the real world with real people. You ask any nursing student, and they will tell you that there is a substantial difference between learning anatomy from a book in a classroom setting and learning anatomy with a real-life patient in the bed in their clinicals. In Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, this is no longer theory. This is no longer Stephen just delivering an eloquent speech with nice thought. No, this is a clear demonstration that Jesus' vision for his church from Acts chapter 1 is coming to fruition. That his church will encompass people from all racial background, from all ethnic background, no matter what the barrier or tension. And this is fantastic news for us. Because I would imagine and guess that the majority of you that are watching this and listening to this right now are probably not Jewish. But what Scripture clearly teaches is that no matter what your background, the good news of Jesus Christ is for you. You are eligible for salvation not because of anything you are, not because of anything you did. No, you are eligible for salvation because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In Galatians chapter 3, 
verses 28 through 29, Paul reminds us. This is what he writes. Take a look at it. He writes that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because Jesus lived and died and rose again, God has torn down every barrier there can be between him and us. The barrier of our sin, the barrier of our death, the barrier of our background no longer stands because Jesus lives. Jesus' death and resurrection is what made salvation possible for the Samaritans. It was the bridge between two worlds that were so far apart. And Jesus' death and resurrection makes salvation possible for you. And if you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you submit to him, then you are heirs. You are recipients of his blessings, which he has promised, just like the Samaritans. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, I um, thank you so much, Lord, uh, that I didn't need to be something to enjoy your blessings. I didn't need to be a certain race or a certain ethnicity to be an heir to your promise, uh, Father, that, 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 uh, that I didn't have to do anything to enjoy the full blessing of Jesus' sacrifice, to enjoy the full blessing of your grace and your mercy. And I would ask, Father, that those who may be listening to these words preached right now, uh, that, that have looked into your word this very day, Lord, would you open their eyes to the beauty of who you are and the beauty of who your spirit is and the beauty of who Jesus is and show them, uh, Father, that they can come as they are. And in your holy name I pray, amen. Would you worship with us one more time, please? Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, once again, if you're a part of the FAC family, this would be the normal part of the service where we would worship God through the collection of an offering. Now, we can't do that physically for obvious reasons, but we have made an easy way for you to participate in uh, giving uh, digitally. Uh, you, you can visit our website, facerie.org slash giving to participate in that fashion. We would encourage you to continue your normal tithes and offerings as you're able. Uh, and now as we close our time, I'd like to read a benediction uh, for us from Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. Uh, Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God bless. Looking forward to seeing you guys again.